0: I had faith and my faith was telling me, I have a dream, I have a vision, and if I have to go through this to get to the vision, if this is the price I have to pay to get to that vision, I'm gonna pay. That was my mindset.
1: Welcome, everyone. My name is Kapil Guy, and you're tuned in to the Finding Perspective podcast, where we share stories and get into deep conversation with the intent. Of educating our listeners to new insight, new ways of thinking, and of course, new perspectives. So, today I have a wonderful guest with me who has an incredible story to share with us today. A story that is a true roller coaster ride that I'm gonna get him to tell us about today. So, today our guest, his name is Patrick Bizendavi. Patrick is a professional in the world of radio, working closely with the Toronto Raptors. He's a motivational speaker, a basketball coach, slash scout and the author of the book, Journeyman Stories. Without further ado, welcome to the show, Patrick. Thank you very
0: much. I've been looking forward to this one. (laughs) Thank you for the invite.
1: Oh, no, no Mm. worries. No worries. So I want to start by going to the beginning of your story. You're originally from Burundi, which is a country located in Eastern Africa. And you had moved here uh, to Toronto, Canada from Burundi in the early 2000s. Now, tell us about that shift that you made from Burundi to Toronto and uh, some of the events that transpired upon your arrival.
0: First of all, I never thought I'll be one day here in Canada because um, I was in Burundi, I was living my passion. I wanted to be a teacher for a long time and I was I was an English teacher. I was a basketball coach. I was working in the radio. I never thought, you know, one day I'll be living but a couple of things happened at the same time that moved me to move here. First of all, 1993, Burundi had a war and many people died, and including family members, co-workers. And, you know, we, we got used to it. I never thought one day I would leave then secondly as I mentioned I was a basketball coach and every year uh, my players w- will leave I start coaching them there when they were 11 12 years old by the time they are 17 they will leave and then one day it just hit me because of the insecurities because of the atmosphere in the country the security and and then a sense of purpose as well so I made the decision it's time for me to leave but I had no idea how I would do that. I had no clue. But I gave myself a year to just uh, to plan. And I knew uh, I would be in Toronto. I chose Toronto for two reasons. One, because English. I was an English teacher. Second, the Raptors, the NBA in general. So I said a date. I said I'll be in Toronto next year by August 15th, which, uh, which is my, my birthday. So that was in 2001. So I said to myself, I'll be in Toronto by August 15, 2002. So I had a whole year, but I had no clue. (laughs) Really, I had no clue. So what happened, I started going online and research about Canada, about Toronto. And I had, uh, for about three months, nothing really happened. I made some contacts here and there in the world of basketball. And then... One day, something magical happened. A lady called me on the phone. She said, my name is so-and-so. I am from uh, Montreal, and I'm a friend of Francois. Francois was my best friend for, you know, for years. But I lost track of him. I didn't know he was in Montreal. So the lady told me, oh, I'm a friend of Francois. He's in Montreal. oh, my goodness. Uh, Can you give me his email or phone number? So the lady gave me his email. So we start talking. When we were kids, all of us had a dream of working in media and radio. So here he is Francois in Montreal working for CBC, doing reports all over the world, living his dream. I'm back home in Burundi, working in the radio, living my dream in a small scale. And I said to Francois, hey man, I'm, I'm planning to come, can you please help? He said, uh, you know, it's tough, but let's do it. let's do a project together. So he came up with this amazing idea of bringing some uh, radio and, and the TV people from CBC coming to Burundi to do a series of training to uh, local reporters. And then as an exchange program, later on, some of us would come in Canada. But there was a catch. He said, all those people, they, they will work for free, but we have to pay for the flight, the accommodation for about 12 days.
1: Work for free in Canada or in Burundi? In Burundi.
0: Okay. And I uh, said, okay, let me try. So I went uh, to my boss. I explained the project. He liked the project until I mentioned the money. (laughs) He said, forget it. Go back in your your office. Forget it, it won't happen. So I tell Francis, you know, my boss doesn't think we can have the money to do that, but let me do it. He goes, okay, go for it. So I went home. I asked my mom to help me write a project. So we put together a nice document, and I started knocking on doors. I went everywhere looking for sponsors and nothing was happening. People were laughing. My colleagues were like, oh, this guy is a dreamer, you know, nothing will happen. And then one day a gentleman came to me and said, you know what, I heard about your project. I know this businessman, he's not rich, but he has some, some contacts, talk to him. So I went to talk to the gentleman, a businessman, and I knew him because his daughter used to play in my team. He looked at the project, and he goes, man, You, you have a vision. I said, yeah, I'm trying. He goes, how about I sponsor everything, all the money you're looking for? But your radio has to be a partner to my company. And I said, I'm not the one calling the shot. Let me talk to my boss. So I went to my boss. I explained the thing, and he said, okay, let's go. 40 million of our friends for the project. 40 million? 40 million, which is about... um, at that time, it was a forty thousand dollars US, okay, which is which was a huge for me was like impossible.
1: What was the name of the currency in Burundi? Burundi francs. Okay.
0: Yeah. So we raised forty million. We brought reporters from uh, from Montreal, and they came to Burundi. We did um, a series of concerts as well. Packed the stadium.
1: So what was the team from Montreal covering? Was it the basketball scene in Burundi? No,
0: they were just coming to do a series of training to local reporters so that we can know how to work professionally and stuff like that. So six months later, they asked me to come, and that's how I came. But along the way, things happened. Even I remember a day before I left, I called my supervisor uh, saying, you know, I'm leaving, I'm going to Canada. I'm leaving tomorrow. He goes, okay, good luck. So are you coming back? I said, I don't know. Uh, It's going to depend. By the time we hung up the phone, I heard gunshot. It was about 4 p.m. And we were used to that. Every day we heard gunshot. It was like normal for for us. But I didn't know that they were shooting at my supervisor, that we were talking on the phone. We were talking on the phone. By eight o'clock in the news, that's when I knew that the gunshot I heard—they were shooting my supervisor—and he died with in his car, with his son. That moment, I knew I won't be coming back, because that was not the first time, like reporters or uh, journalists that were targeting in, in any violence and stuff like that.
1: What was the reason for the targeting?
0: Because we were in a private radio at that time, and we. You know, private radio, sometimes you you interview everybody. And at that time, in time of war, some of my colleagues were interviewing what they call rebels, people, in the, you know, that we gave them airwaves. And at that time, the government was not very happy with us because, I mean, we were one of the biggest radio in terms of audience. So we gave microphone to everybody. But the government at that time was not happy so that we can you know, give the microphone to those people. So many of my colleagues went to prison so many times. And, in, and then one day there was a, an attempted coup. The president was out, outside of the country. So the, some part of the army, they took over and then they came to protect our radio station because we were the only radio station on air at that time. So it was, it, was, it was scary. It was really scary. So all those things combined, I decided not to come back. And I was in Canada a week before August 15th. I was here on August 8th, a week before my target. So I went to Montreal and then came to Toronto with a dream of um, watching the NBA and speak English because I was in English back home. And then 17 years later, I'm still here.
1: (laughs) So, okay, this, this has been quite a story. But I know it doesn't stop there. I know there's a kind of like you you leave us at a cliffhanger and then the roller coaster continues. So you brought your wife and your daughter as well?
0: No, I was single at that time. You were single. okay. I, I was single at that time. I came, I was just by myself. Uh, with no money really. At that time, I had sixty dollars in my pocket.
1: Do, do you have siblings? Do you have? A I lot?
0: have uh, two brothers. Yeah. So when I left, they were still in Burundi. Yeah. So when I came here, what can you do with sixty dollars? Really, exactly. nothing. So I found myself with no money. People refer me to a shelter, so I I became homeless. That was the first time in many times later that I became homeless. So I was living in a homeless shelter for about three months uh, before get back on my feet and find help and get a room to rent. So that was the first time I was homeless, but I was single at that time. But later on, as we may talk about later, I became homeless multiple times with my family. Mm. Uh, that's another story. <laughs> right, right,
1: right. And we'll get to that. We'll yes. get to that as well. Yeah. Okay. So you were living in Montreal and then you moved to Toronto?
0: I, I Montreal was there just for two weeks. Two weeks. Uh, two okay. weeks. And then... I knew Toronto was the destination, so I came to Toronto.
1: Now, what was that feeling like? You know, you come from a French-speaking country. Yes. Uh, you moved to a part of Canada that is also French-speaking. Yes. Was it kind of like a, a good segue for you to allow, allow you to become a little bit more comfortable, like in a foreign land?
0: Yes, yes. Mind you, Francois was in Montreal when I when I came. So, him and another friend, they, you know, they welcomed me. Um, it was good. But I knew in my heart Toronto was the, the city, yeah. especially because of the NBA. Uh, so, I was there for a week just to... You know about the subway system and how things work and i remember going to the store to buy um, um, a backpack and saying 20 dollars but you end up paying 20 plus tax that was like a foreign <laughs> language for me. Like, what, what do you mean plus tax and then all those things but it was just one week then beginning of a second week i came to toronto uh with a big dream to create things and and here i am <laughs> so
1: then uh, you get to toronto where are you living
0: A friend of mine gave me uh, a place to stay for about a week, a week and a half uh, in a basement, but I I wanted to just be on myself and, and try to live the dream. But again, with no money, what, what can you do? So, and at that time, there, there was a youth summit that happened in Toronto with the Pope. And there were so many people at that- Was that Downsview
1: Park or something I, like that? I
0: don't even mm-hmm. remember where yeah. it was, but many many people decided to stay in Canada, right. that they came from different countries. So all the shelters were like packed. Mm-hmm. So the only shelter that I found uh, was a homeless shelter, downtown by Jarvis and Dundas. So it was like first come, first serve. If you come late, no bed and big room. And, and I'm like, okay, now I have a place to sleep. Let me start everything fresh. And I remember there was food. Yeah. Uh, and I remember sitting with my homeless friends and, you know, sharing a meal. Some were watching TV. They were teaching me about American football. And one of them asked me, so what brought you here? I said, I have a dream. I was, what kind of dream? I said, my dream is to work in the radio. And they all laughed, man. They said, dude, you're homeless. Why, why, are you, <laughs> <laughs> why are you talking about radio? I say, hey, man. Uh, but in in my mind, I knew it was possible because of the project I did in Burundi. I mean, 40 million that we raised in a poor country in a war, what can I do in Canada? Which is like, in my mind, everything was available. So I said, hey, don't worry. I'm, I'm gonna live my dream one day. Six months later, I was working in radio. That was my first job in Canada, radio station.
1: And tell us about that opportunity. So you get, this was with CBC, your first, your first no, job?
0: No, it was a, it was a French community radio.
1: What was the name of the station?
0: Shock FM. That's the one I've, I've been working with the NBA. Yes, yes So yes. that's
1: the one. Yes. Okay, so tell us about how that opportunity got started and, you know, where you, what, what was the first role? Was it like an entry-level job or?
0: I was volunteering.
1: Oh, you are volunteering. Uh, yeah,
0: so I was talking to everybody. Yeah. And one day I was, uh, I was going on the Yonge Street. I saw a gentleman and I knew, I knew him because he was from Burundi. Uh, back home, he was working on TV. So everybody knew him because we saw him on TV. So I stopped him on the street and said, hey, I know you. My name is Patrick. How are you? So we started talking. Yeah. So I asked him, so are you still in the media? I'm looking for radio or TV, anything. Yeah. He said, yeah, no, I, you know, I changed my career. But I know a community radio. This is the phone number. Mm-hmm. Call them up. You never know how we never forget that it was a I called the number and there was a lady who picked up the phone and say, hey, my name is Patrick. I'm a journalist from Burundi. I would like to visit the radio and see what you do. He goes, yeah, yeah. Come on Tuesday. There'll be somebody on the studio. Mm. So the next Tuesday I went to the studio and it was like a typical radio studio. And there was a gentleman on the computer. We start talking. I asked him, so what kind of shows do you do? He said, um, here is a paper, just read. So I read, you know, on the paper, there was different shows I do. And I saw that on Saturdays, they had sports news. And I said, hey, man, I would like to come and help. He goes, yeah, no problem. This is uh, the phone number of the reporter. Call him and then uh, maybe we say yes. So I called the guy and I said, hey, my name is Patrick. I'm from Burundi. I saw that you do sports news on, on, on Saturday. I would like to come and do the show with you. Free of charge. You don't, you know. He goes, Oh my God, I'm from Burundi too.
1: (laughs) <laughs> Just like that. Is there is there a big population of uh, in, in Toronto or in the GTF people from Burundi? At that time, no. No. Uh, I think the first
0: wave came uh, 1994, 95, 96. Mm. But at that time, there was no, I mean, there was few, but many of them go to Montreal because of French. Yes. Yeah. So Saturday, uh, the, the show was 11 o'clock. I was so excited. I got there at nine o'clock. <laughs> so I waited and waited and waited. So the gentleman I saw on Tuesday was still at the studio studio, About 15 minutes before 11, he goes, "Hey man, uh, the guy was supposed to do the show. He won't be here. He got a family emergency. So, do you think you can do the show?" <laughs> <laughs> Just like that, I, I said, "All right, give me time. I'm gonna prep." And so he gave me like a few minutes. I went on the computer, oh, watch geez. what's <laughs> over there, <laughs> yeah. what's happening, and at 11 o'clock, I was live on the radio. Mm-hmm. I talk about everything, including hockey. I'm telling you, man, I had no idea what I was talking about. (laughs) Because hockey is not my thing. I mean, but I talk about hockey, different things. And and the guy was impressed. He was like, oh, man, have you done radio before? I said, yeah. Yeah. And uh, at the end, I saw, I said, "Uh, can I come back tomorrow? He goes, yeah. So the next day I came, six months, I was volunteering every single day for six months.
1: Every, every single day? Every day, man. So, man, like, how are you affording to eat? Like, where is it?
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, at that time, I was I was still in the shelter uh, in, yeah. in the time. So, I would, I would leave the shelter, come to the radio, and go back to the shelter. And then somebody told me about getting the social assistance. Yeah. Uh, I said, okay, let me try that. So, I got a little bit to pay the rent. I got a room. And then every day, I would go to the radio station every day until six months later, I even helped them apply for a grant and that the grant was enough to have money to pay me. Mm -hmm. So that's how I got my first job in in, in Canada, really. And I was the project manager of the radio. I helped them apply for grants. And at that time, they didn't even have a license to work 24 seven. It was just for three months. And then, so I helped the radio to get the license. I worked there for about a year and a half, but I was volunteering in a different organization until one organization helped me get a full-time job where I was doing, helping new immigrants Toronto speak French. So that was my second job. I was working there, but I kept doing radio shows on the side. And many years later, the same radio station, I worked with them into getting into the NBA because I had contacts with the Raptors. So I arranged them to get, into the NBA. And that's how I got my first season as an NBA reporter. And my very
1: first season as a reporter, they won the championship. I mean. I, so that, that <laughs> we'll get to in a second, because that is a juicy story. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we'll get to that in a second, but I just want to backtrack a little. All right. okay. So, you know, you come from Burundi. I'm guessing that you're living a relatively good life out there. You come to a foreign land and you're homeless. Yes. Now, what, what effect that I have on your pride? You know, it's it, it's it's hard because the idea
0: uh, that we had of the country was when we saw friends going to Canada, come back, they smell good, they look good, well, they, they gain weight. I said, man, they are rich. So I thought, no problem. I'm going to go get get there and be rich. And, and the reality was like, whoa, I didn't know this would happen. <laughs> and I think what saved my life was the project I did in Burundi with the Canadian uh, reporters. Because... At that time, my salary at the radio station was less than hundred dollars a month. Mm. And here I am with that salary. I do a project with 40 million. So it taught me to dream. And I came with that, uh, with with the sense of being like, I'm invincible. That kept me alive when I was homeless because I, I said, you know what, if I can do that in Burundi, regardless if I'm homeless or not, one day, I'll make things happen. I gave myself three years. I told a friend of mine that I met, I said, you know, in, in the three years, I'll be a millionaire. That how bored I was, but I'm still waiting. <laughs> <laughs> but that kept me really, hope is, is something amazing. When you, when you have hope, the, the circumstances you live in don't matter anymore. So I was homeless. Yes, I wanted, I wanted things to happen fast. And and I, I even could call my brothers or my mom to tell them I have no money. So that really- Were they aware of your situation? No, didn't I, 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 I didn't tell them anything. And that was not the only thing. The other thing is that when I came here, so I applied to be a refugee. So when in, the, in that process of being a refugee claimant, you have to go through different steps, in, including uh, you have to do your medicals with, with a doctor, immigration doctor. So I went to the hospital. They did test and they saw that I had TB in my lungs. I had no idea. So at that moment, when they saw I had TB, I had to go to into medication for nine months. And it was Scary, because with that, I couldn't even have permit to work in Canada. So that time I was volunteering in the radio station, I couldn't even work. So being homeless and being on medication for nine months not being being able to work, it was a serious hit on my confidence because I thought I was invincible and I always joke that I, in Burundi I, I felt like I was Superman and then my, my early days in Canada I was Clark Kent. <laughs> <laughs> so it really hits you but when you have hope, when you have done something and you succeed, yeah. that experience can can be the only hope that you have.
1: Right, right. I, I will get to the Raptors thing. That's like the, yes. that, that, that's later on in the Interview because there's just quite a bit that I want to uncover here. Yes. um Okay, so you know you're, you're a single man. How did you meet your wife? We met. Uh, I
0: went back um, to Africa after six years, so we met there and we developed a relationship distance, and then so one. So
1: like the on- online, yeah. Um, so this is like the the very beginning. The of very the beginning, yeah. yes,
0: and and uh, so we kept back and forth, and then one day I say, you know what? How about I proposed on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, That's a good way. <laughs> on the phone, and then she she said yes. I said okay, let's do it. So in 2010, uh, I went down there, got married, just a small reception, and we you know, and then I came back and I, and I sponsored her. So in the process for of us, um, the the sponsoring, a year later I went back home, and then we did you know the big wedding, traditional wedding and stuff like that. And what happened at that time? A friend of mine introduced me to a business that I was doing with a partner, and that business, at the very early days, we did well. We did really well in the in the ne- in the first few months, and then I decided to leave my full time job so that I can go into business full time. So we did well for a few for a few months, and then at that time it was a time for me to go home to get married. So I left the business, went home. I thought it was for a month or two. Once in Burundi, I started getting projects. I, I worked on a massive project while I was getting married. So I ended up staying for almost six months in Burundi. So we got married. I came back. By the time I here, I, I came back, we had nothing because I was not there. I said, okay, I've done it before. I, I can do it again. So I started going out and getting some new contracts and uh, And by the time I got my first contract, my wife called me and said, hey, I got a visa. So she came while I was still, like, struggling, really. And I was like, oh, man. And she was pregnant. I was like, okay, man. (laughs) I was like, okay, I cannot wait. Let me bring her. So my first contract, uh, I got a ticket. So she came. And the first days, it was like a struggle, really a struggle. We got ourselves an apartment, a few contracts in there, no problem. And then we got our our daughter, she was born in, in 2012. And then it's when everything stopped. All the contracts that we're getting, all the money that were coming in, everything stopped. Six months later, I became homeless again because we had no money, nothing. And how can you become homeless? I always ask myself, everything can happen in a second. This lady that I didn't know, she called me. She goes, oh, I heard you. You can help me get my non-for-profit organization on. Yeah, I want to do projects in Africa. I heard about things about you. I would like to hire you. Money is not a problem. I said, really? Okay. So I stopped everything I was doing so that I can help this lady. For three months, I was doing the work, waiting for the money. He said, no problem. And then the fourth month into the job, he goes, you know what? All the people who say we're giving money, we don't have the same vision. So I'm going to drop everything. And now I'm like, She didn't pay you at all? Nothing. Okay. And that's how I got myself homeless because I was expecting this money to come in because we had a contract, we had the money, and I was just waiting. And the landlord was like, Hey, man, where's the rent? (laughs) And then in December, the sheriff came, bum, and then we were on the street. Myself, uh, my wife, and at that time, my daughter was six months old. It was in December into the winter. I had only a stroller. And that's it. And I asked the sheriff, can I go back and get some, some stuff? Uh, he goes, no. If you want to come back, ask the landlord. He will, he will have to give you permission to come back. He never gave me the keys anymore. We left everything. I mean, furnitures. I had a library of 200 books and DVDs and CDs. Everything gone in one second. Everything
1: I mean like when you're homeless, I mean being homeless in any situation is a bad is a bad place to be, but I feel like when you were homeless being single, I feel like you're like okay, I can manage, but now yeah. you have two mouths yeah. to feed on top of that. Yeah. Man, like what is, what was going through your mind at that time?
0: Oh man, so we left with the stroller, with the baby, we went to the food court. We waited for 4 hours. I was just like okay, what's what's my next move? I had no idea, man. I I had no clue. And then my wife was crying and the baby, oh, six months, she has no clue. And uh, my wife called a friend. Uh, she called a friend They say, come. So the friend came without knowing what it was. So she saw us and she goes, okay, come to my place. Mm-hmm. So we went, no, they went, they left. I stayed at the food court. So I call my business partner, explain to him what happened. Okay. He goes, oh my goodness. Okay, he had a few money. He gave me the money, so I joined I join my family to our friend's house. So the friend kept us for about um, three weeks, four weeks. I two bedroom apartment, but I didn't want to rely really on her and you know. So we ended up in a shelter again. So I called the shelter. We stayed there for about six months. And at that time, uh, my wife was studying college. She was going to college every day and I, I, I stayed with the baby. It was like crazy. I mean, uh, talking about humbling experience, you know, uh, as I, when I was working in a non-for-profit organization that helped new immigrants speak French, one of the things I used to do was to refer the newcomers, the refugees to, to shelters. Right Now I was living with them in the shelter. And they saw me and said, oh, are you here? They didn't ask any question. They say, oh, okay, we became friends, you know. But it was it was
1: tough. And what was it like in these shelters? Because for those who are listening, I mean, we hear about shelters all the time on yeah. TV. But what was it actually like being in there with you know, your I mean,
0: um, because we we're a family, so we were in a family shelter. So they have very good services. They even have a daycare. So oh. I, I could leave my daughter. Uh, my wife will go to, to school. And- I will go looking for a job or something, and then the, my daughter would stay in the daycare. And they give you a little bit of money so that you can buy groceries, But and then you have to cook yourself, your, your food. I mean, we stayed there. And at that time, nobody knew what happened. Even my friends, nobody knew we were in the shelter. Until one, I don't know how this friend uh, got the news. He told me, no, man, this is this, this not normal. You have to live there. I'm going to the States, uh, my apartment is available, come. I'm gonna give you my apartment so that you can get back on your feet, just live there. So we left the shelter, we went to uh, the apartment downtown and then <laughs> my friend came back from the States and we had no other place to go. So I have to leave again the apartment with no idea where we're going. Yeah. So uh, we parked again, went to a food court, it was raining, man. It was raining. My family there, my wife, and I, I, and I start calling people. Nobody would pick up my phone. Until, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine who's in Calgary and say, hey, man, uh, the same thing happened to me, you know, who saved my life. I say, who? Uh, a pastor. A pastor of a church. And I say, hmm, I know a pastor. I took the phone, called the pastor, explained the situation. He was living far in the East End. He took his van, came downtown. It was almost midnight. Put everything in the van. He went, he paid a hotel for a few days for us. Yeah. So we went in this place for a few days. And then, you know, and, and again, where should we go? Where should we go? And after that, my wife said, you know what? Enough is enough. She called the city of Toronto and says, okay, we have a place for you. So they sent a taxi. My wife went in the car with my daughter. They left. And I didn't know where they where they're going. I was downtown Toronto and I'm so like. So
1: the, the city only had accommodations for them and not for, for you? For them,
0: yeah. Not for me. Okay. It was for women, women and okay. kids. No women, children, yeah. Yeah. So she left. She took a taxi. She left. I had no clue. So I'm like, okay, where should I go? I had a bag with my laptop. <laughs> there was a Tim Hortons 24 yeah. 7. I went there, plugged my laptop, started watching videos, TD Jakes and all those speakers. Spend the first night there. And then the, the next, the next, I spent about four days. in the, in the And uh, at that time, my wife called me and uh, I knew where they were. So I would go. And, and the pastor helped me say, hey, man, come over. We have a basement at church. You can stay there. So I, I, I would go to the shelter, pick up my daughter, bring her to daycare so that my wife could go to school. And then when she's back at the shelter, I'll go to pick up a daycare, come back, and it lasts about almost six months, where I was living in the basement of a church. Yeah. And then my wife and and, and daughter were in the shelter, and every morning I would go get my daughter to daycare, and and it was tough, man.
1: I mean, you're a very optimistic dude. (laughs) I mean, like, going through all of this, you getting homeless, and- going to shelters, being homeless, going, you know, staying at friends' places, it's like this whole entire cycle. I mean, at some point, did you not get frustrated? and be like, man, honestly, forget this. Let's just go back home. You know, from the day it happened, uh, I think
0: this is what helped me. I had faith and my faith was telling me, I have a dream. I have a vision. And if I have to go through this to get to the vision, if this is the price I have to pay to get to that vision, I'm going to pay. That was my mindset. But I made sure my, my wife and daughter were okay. You know, I was there even with a little bit of money. Um, I was there to help whatever they need. But I knew somehow things would change. I had no idea how things would change. But I have this faith that told me things would change. And all the time I would tell my friend, you know what? I'm building a story. One day I'll be able to look back and tell story, and here I am. I'm sharing the story in a in a better place. Right. Uh and that kept me alive, but it was tough, man. It was What effect did that have on your marriage? <laughs> like oh <laughs> man. <laughs> Even until now, that happened many years later. Until now, it's it's, it's a work in progress. I mean, yeah. it's crazy. Because and I understand, because my wife came from Africa with uh expectations. She didn't know she'd go through. All of this, and it had a hit on our relationship, but hey man, I made so many mistakes, but along the way, I got mentors who I remember one mentor of mine, a friend of mine, he, he sat me down. He goes, you have a dream, I understand, but you have a family. Stop everything, go look for a job because the dream can wait. And I was saying myself, no, 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 the business will work. The business will work, but he goes, Hey man, your, your family is suffering. Stop everything. Go for look for a job. And I say, you know what? You're right. I stopped everything. I went. I started looking for jobs. And my first job was teaching French. <laughs> I started teaching French as a second language, part-time. And he brought a little bit of money. We got an apartment, you know. And then the part-time became full-time. And then things happened. They stopped. Oh, my God. They stopped my contract. I'm like, Are you kidding me, man?
1: (laughs) Did you feel like, man, like I just can't get a break, man? I just keep things things keep working, and it was like every they
0: they cancel everything. I'm like, oh my god! And my wife said, hey, man, you 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 need to find something. So I went look for agencies. I got a job in um, insurance. I was there for two weeks, and all the time I was like, man, no, man, this is not me, man. I, I don't. And then I was lucky. My former job. A lady went to Matt leave, there was a position. They call me, hey, you've done the job before. We're looking for somebody, are you available? I say, yeah, man, I'm available. So 2015, I went back to my former work. Until recently, I was working there. And now, as we speak, in two days, I'm starting a new job at CBC.
1: Amazing, man. Yeah. Congratulations yeah. on that. I mean, CBC is a, is a huge, phenomenal network. Um, covering stories of of all sorts, you know. So for any storyteller, you know that CBC is like the place, the place where you want to get that told. So, and I'm glad that, you know, you've come out of these dark times but yeah, talk about the role with uh, CBC and what's what's going on over there.
0: So I'm starting in two days and I'll be working uh, in the head office uh, with the, the general manager. It's a new position that they created. I'll be in charge of uh, community relations at, at CBC. It's a French CBC. Yeah. Um, community relations. Yes. Okay. Community It's a new. It's a new position. So I'll be working with the communities. Try to link the community to CBC. What but type I, of communities? You know the French-speaking communities in Toronto, yeah. uh, because we're so diverse. I mean, yeah. French-speaking people come from different backgrounds, different countries. Now, my role will be how can can we establish partnerships uh, between community organizations and CBC and the French CBC? That will be uh, mainly my 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 role, but. As I was in the past, in the you know, the, the Raptors, I was working with CBC as well as, as a reporter and, um, and experts on the NBA. So whenever they need me in the studio to talk about the NBA, the Raptors, I, I I'll go there.
1: It's okay, the, the Raptors, how did this all come together? How did this gig come into your life? You know, it's it's a full circle. When
0: I was working at that um, non-for-profit that helped uh, French-speaking immigrants, I was in charge of putting together events as well as media relations. So that that was my, my job. So I kept the media part into my job. So every year we do a soccer tournament when we have uh, about 200 people coming in from different parts of the city. We do a picnic, the teams play soccer. So I call this radio, My former radio. And I say, hey, uh, I'm putting together these soccer tournaments for French-speaking people. Can you do reports and do interviews and stuff like that? They say, hey, yeah, we'll be there. They even say, oh, we're going to do live. I say, oh, wow, that's amazing. So two days before the event, the general manager of the radio, she called me. She said, Patrick, I have this, this idea. We are doing live broadcast and you'll be there. You've done radio before. How about you do it? And I'm like, okay, let me talk to my boss. And if she's okay, I'm going to do it. So she's, she was okay. Then when we started the tournament, I started doing radio live. I mean, if you've done radio before, it's something magical. When you, you have the microphone, you're reporting. And I was like, oh, man, I miss radio. I, mean, I, I want to go back and do radio. So after the, the broadcasting, I called the manager. I said, man, I would like to come back and do something. She goes, oh, yeah, please, we'd like to have you. And I said, but I have no idea what I want to do. Give me a few weeks to think about that. She goes, okay, whenever you're ready, just let me know. And I was, okay, wh- what can I do? Do I want to motivate people? Do want-? I was thinking in those terms, share my story, and, da, da, da. and one day I was dri- driving my car, and it hit me. I goes, oh, man, the NBA. <laughs> the Raptors. So I stopped the car, called the lady. I said, "Um, do you have anybody at the studio who does the the NBA? She goes, no, we have somebody who does sports, but not specifically the NBA. I said, I want to do it. She goes, really? I said, yeah. I said, do you have all the media uh, pass to get in? She goes, no. Can you help us? I said, no problem. So I had a a contact with the Raptors. So I reached out to him. And I said, hey, I got this gig at the radio, but I don't know what to do. Who should I talk to? He said, hey, talk to Phil. That is his name. So, I talked to Fear. They told me the requirements. I went to the radio. So, okay, these are the requirements. They said, okay, let's do that. So, they went through the paperwork. And by the beginning of the season, bam, I got all the paperwork. Wow. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> so, I went there as a French reporter. And I'm like, oh, my God. You go into the locker room. You see the players. This is, it. I mean, I've been following the NBA for 35 years. I mean, as a kid, I was watching those games at 3 a.m. And now I'm in there. I, it's like you you sit in the media room. You're sitting with Shaquille O'Neal and Charles Barkley and all yeah. those guys. Oh, it's it's mind yeah. blowing, and what a season! They what end season. up making yeah. the finals and the, the NBA champions, and I was there to witness it. Oh my goodness, this this is crazy. This is crazy.
1: What was... You know, like, okay, so you get to go... You went for all 41 games? I went all the home home games. All the home games. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you're there, all the home games. I mean, and so you get... You come in early. Uh, you get set up. Where were you So Where are the, the media seats?
0: Well, you, you come early, like two hours before. And inside, in the locker room, they have a place for media. So you go there. They, you have all the notes about the games. And, and so you can prep. They let you know what time the coach is going to come for the press conference. And then there is a place where the media seat if you're doing live you are you are close to the court but if you're doing reports and stuff like that you go up on the third level that was my place on the third level and then by the time the game ends you go in the locker room okay so you you
1: come early you watch the are you doing like live commentating while the
0: game's going on no it wasn't live okay Uh, i was i was doing two things i was writing an article By the time they are playing, I'm writing my notes, uh, what will be my my article. And then at the end of the game, we go in the locker room, we ask them questions, press conference, we do interviews, and then I do my radio report. So I was doing both radio and the internet. And then by the time I got home, I do my editing and stuff like that. I sent to the radio station, they will post it online and broadcast on the radio on the next day. It was like, ah, man, it was a dream, man, just to go there and be... Just in front of Kawaii.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I mean,
0: uh, I was like, "Wow!" Wait, did you get to the playoff games
1: too? Oh yes,
0: all the way to the finals, man.
1: So did you get to? You got to witness the shot?
0: Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, I was there, and I remember this is one of the highlights, man. Before game one, there was a media availability. Game one, which round? Uh, finals. Okay. The finals. So all the media gathered in one place, and then there will the players, the coaches will come. And then when the French-speaking players come, then they will ask us to ask questions. So uh, that day, Pascal Siakam went on the stage and I, I read in the news that he received a letter from the Minister of Sports in Cameroon. Oh, wow. And then I asked him a question, okay, what does it mean as an African to be an inspiration for the whole continent? Even the Minister of Cameroon gave you, sent you a letter saying congratulations. What does it mean to you to be an inspiration? So he gave this amazing response. I mean, it was really amazing. So all the media, uh, French media, pick up the, the, the interview. It went nuts. I was reading articles in France about that question. I got this was
1: because of your question? Because
0: of my question. And then I got an invite to be an, on a panel by Voice of America in Washington, D.C. because of that question. And second time uh, Pascal came... I was not there. So they asking questions and at the end he was like, "Oh man, no French today? Where are the French people?" Yeah. And it was not and that clip him asking for a French language, it went viral. And people was asking, Patrick, wow. where, where were you? Where were you? And I'm like, hmm,
1: I became the French expert now. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that's crazy. Like, so, you know, and I think you you you've you interviewed Pascal Siakam. Uh, you also interviewed Serge Ibaka? Yes. Okay. Yes. So you get to, you know, they have you reserved for all the French-speaking players.
0: Yes. Oh, that was not only for the Raptors, but if any team have French-speaking players, like uh, Joey Embiid, yeah. he speaks French. I interview him. You interviewed him? Uh, all of French-speaking players. Players in the NBA, whenever they come here, I always interview them. Do,
1: do they recognize you, any of them?
0: Pascal Siakam, yes.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. cool. And Chris Boucher. Chris Boucher. Chris Boucher. He speaks French too, He's yeah.
0: from Montreal. One day we met downtown. He saw me. He goes, hey, man, what's up? I was like, whoa. Yeah, but Pascal, because every single game I would interview Pascal. Yeah, yeah. So now he he got used to it. One day he forgot about the French interview. Yeah. He was leaving the locker room, right. and he remembered, oh, French
1: he came back looking for me. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, this is this is really good. I feel like, you know, by you being there, it's giving access to all the French-speaking uh, fans all across the world. Yes. Um, you know, maybe English is not their first language. Maybe the, they're not as familiar because it's just not their first yes. language, but in French they do. So how does it make you feel knowing that you are playing, you're kind of playing as a part of a messenger That's right. delivering the message in a language that certain people... Need to have a heard. In. You know, it's, it had a
0: huge impact. A huge impact. I remember, we put together a basketball tournament here in in um, in Toronto for our community. So when I went there, it was like, oh my God, you made it! You made it! You are in the NBA. And I'm like, wow, I didn't know, you know. And one fellow came to me and he said, you know, you are the first person from Burundi who is witnessing the NBA finals. You should bring a, f- a flag. You should go and bring a flag and take a picture. And I'm like, yeah, man. So I had a flag in my car, a Burundi flag. So game one, I came early, brought my flag. And then I asked a friend, I said, okay, can you take a picture? I put, you know, the flag way like this, huge. And they, he took a picture and I posted a picture on my Facebook. It went viral. All the French-speaking people, all the people from Burundi, all... It became something, it was it was magical. And I don't know if we get time to, to, to speak about my basketball camp.
1: For sure we will. I,
0: I I went there and people in Burundi saw me. You know what they say? Raptors! Wow. <laughs> I became the face of the Raptors. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm Maasai. <laughs> <laughs> Maasai so that was that was the impact. And then yeah. once the other media started inviting me as, as yeah. the expert, that's how I got my foot into CBC. Because they, they say, okay, could you come to the studio so that you can share your insight about the games? And because right. now that the Raptors are in the finals, now it, it's a country thing. And even people who don't, who don't watch basketball, they want to know. So I became like the expert who is in the studio, in different media to explain what's happening on, on the court.
1: Well, well, now with, you know, Pascal Siakam, Joel Embiid, Serge Ibaka, no, I think I think Clint Cabela is also is also African. Yeah, yeah, Clint
0: he's uh, he's um, originally from Africa, but he grew up in Switzerland, so he speaks French. Okay,
1: okay, yeah, so yeah. and then what's really okay? What's really interesting? This is kind of like a two part question. You're a French African. We're seeing a lot of French African players, you know. So obviously you would feel you know represented in these players, like they're telling your story. Yes, you know, you feel like are telling the story of, of a lot of yourself and a lot of people who you know, which is amazing, but. What do you feel about the future of more African-born players being drafted to the league? You know, I know that Masai Ujiri, Masai Ujiri the Raptors, Tron, the Toronto Raptors GM, guy who's you know done phenomenal things for the city, brought us our first championship. You know, he started Giants of Africa which is, uh, you know, a series of basketball camps all across Africa. I actually had the chance to see him speak um, about Giant, Giants of Africa at TEDx Toronto and, um, you know, just hearing his vision and what how he plans to use uh, building the idea of building communities through sports, which I think is phenomenal, ch- channeling that energy into sports. But how do you feel about the future of African-born players being, you know, drafted to the league, but also perhaps... Prominent figures in the league and oh, franchise it's, it's, players. It's,
0: it's just a matter of time, because many years ago it was just Dikembe Mutombo, um, Hakim Olajuwon. That was it. And manut Ball came in, and uh, here and there we could find okay one African, but with Siakam, with Embiid, with uh, with, with Giannis. The, yeah. Y- <laughs> yeah, Giannis. <laughs> now it's it's open. Yeah. I I remember when we were kids when we start watching the NBA in Africa, because Africa, the, the, the biggest sport is soccer. All the kids, they want to be soccer stars. Basketball was not a thing. So I, I started watching basketball in 1983, 84, 85. So I knew about Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson. But we were just a few kids watching the game. And then 1992 happened with Barcelona, with the Dream Team. Michael Jordan and the Magic, and it became this huge thing in Africa. And people just discovering a game that I've been watching for at least 10 years. So I, I'm like, where have, where have you been? These, these are the people that we've been watching for years. But now it's beyond that. Even the, the finals, when the Raptors were playing Golden State, I was at the, the Scotiabank Arena Friends in Burundi were texting me. They say, "Man, the Raptors, man, they are really good." I'm like, "They are watching." Wow. Yeah.
1: Me being an Indian, we still don't have an Indian player in the NBA. It'll it happen. It'll happen. It happened. I mean, I know that there was a there's a guy from Toronto, Sim Buller. Uh, who played in Sacramento very, for, very briefly. And uh, there was another guy that was drafted to Dallas, Sat Nam Singh. Um, but we haven't had a, a prominent uh, figure yet. I mean, however, the, uh, the super fan of uh, oh, yes. the Toronto yes. Raptors, Nav Batia, who's, you know, really been putting us out there in basketball, which has been really great to see. So the thing that, or that I found about the Toronto Raptors being in the finals was that they, like that team really represented the city and the fact that we are an international city. I uh, really represented that really uh, very well, you know, with Jeremy Lin being on the team. Yes. Serge Ibaka, Marcus Saul, a lot of international players or players who, uh, who are of international descent. Seeing that and seeing all these other countries' supporters, like I I heard, you know that the Indian newspaper was covering the Raptors. Oh wow! You know all this—it was all this crazy stuff was going on. So it was just really crazy. The entire world watching, and when the entire world was watching, we won. Uh, Yes. And that was that was the craziest part. Is it kind of like I feel like it kind of broke that that ice. It was
0: it was something amazing. It was incredible. Um, many uh, weeks, I mean, months after the finals. Yeah. I was in the office and a coworker of mine, she came to me. He said, my my cousin just came from Africa and um, she would like to go to see Jurassic Park. I said, there was no game. There's no Jurassic Park is it? No 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 they just want to see Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. I said there's nothing happening it's just buildings and it's no 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 no. Can you please tell me where is Jurassic Park? Yeah. So that's the, the that's the phenomenon of the raptors winning. It's crazy.
1: We don't even realize it cuz we're here. We were here. We were here. And, but we
0: people were watching and yeah. these people can all the way from africa to visit for a few weeks and they, all they wanted to see was jurassic park yeah, that's that's phenomenal
1: it's crazy because it, you know a championship will make you do things that you would never do i mean i went to the parade and man i stand i stood in that parade for like i think like 7 hours no food no water nothing but just the energy of knowing that i'm here and this will never happen again i mean not that it won't ever happen again i hope of course it will but i don't know when this will ever happen again
0: it was history
1: it was a really and, history. And, and what's crazy is that, you know, being a fan in Toronto, you feel like you're part of it because you're City. But you had a very interesting story where you were lit, honestly, in the stadium. You were there interviewing these players. You were there making, you know, people like Siakam feel like they were, you know, they were at home having other reporters, speaking to them in French, making them feel comfortable. How does that make you feel that you were actually like, you know, you actually had a, a part to play? Like you were part of it in, in a way. You are part of the this moment.
0: It was unbelievable because the flashback... You know, my dream, really, when I, when I say I want to be in Toronto, my dream was not to be there with the players. My dream was to go there and see one game. That would be it. i will be like, man, I'm done.
1: And you got 41. <laughs>
0: <laughs> not even, I wanted to just be able to pay, get my ticket, sit down, and watch the game. That, that would be, okay, man, I'm done. And I remember the last game that Michael Jordan came to play in Toronto. I was in the shelter. I didn't have money. And I'm like, this is the last game Jordan is, is playing. And I, uh,
1: was this uh, when he was on the Wizards? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah.
0: And men, 17 years later, I'm in the locker room. I'm watching the games. I'm interviewing the players. I'm like, wow. Did
1: you, did you ever like pinch yourself? Go like this. I, like, it, it what was, is happening? Uh, every time. <laughs> Stop even, yourself. <laughs> just, even happening. before
0: the finals, before yeah. the play. the Every time I would go to the game, like two hours before the game, I into the Scotiabank Arena and I'm like, is this happening to me? <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it. And then the finals and then all these things. So it's here I come and, and later on my, my, my basketball camp in Africa, this year, 2019 has been like, I, I have no words to explain what happened to me this year because it's, it's crazy.
1: When did you start these camps, the basketball camps? And tell us like, what are you doing with these basketball camps? What are you developing? So
0: it came exactly with the Raptors. As I, I was covering the finals, a Friend of mine who, who works for uh, Voice of America texts me. He goes, I'm doing this panel to talk about the impact of uh, Siakam and those plays on the basketball in Africa. Would you be interested to be part of the, the, the show? I said, No problem. So he was on the phone. So he had three guests. It was uh, myself, a friend of mine who's in Sweden, and then he invited in the studio a coach who is uh, from Africa, but he lives in uh, Washington, D.C. for 30 years. So we sent him our bio. So he would read, okay, Patrick, blah, blah, blah. And my friend was in Sweden. And when he read the bio of the coach who was in the studio, I was like, whoa, man, I need to know this guy. He, over the years, he brought over 200 athletes from Africa. Got them scholarships. All across the continent. Yes. Okay. Uh, got them scholarship to play uh, NCAA in the, in the U.S., and two of them became professionals in the NBA. And one of them is Luke Bamute, who's from Cameroon. He's the one who brought Siakam and Joey Embiid. He was part of his program. And I'm like, I need to know this guy. So I asked the reporter, can you give, him, can you give me his phone number? So he gave me the phone, called up the guy, and we talked for about three hours on the phone. He just came from Zimbabwe when he did a basketball camp with Luke Bamute, and another NBA player, Trevor Ariza. He brought them to Zimbabwe. And I'm like, hmm, this is very interesting. And I said to him, would you be interested to come with me in Burundi to do a camp similar to what you did? He goes, I'm going to Burundi, to Zimbabwe in September. If you can put something together in August, I would come. We were in June, so I had two months. <laughs> And I said, okay, let me ask people in Burundi if they'll be interested to, to have the camp. So I knew everybody in Burundi in basketball world. So I, I made a phone call. They'll say, yeah, let's do it. I said, are you serious? Yeah. Can you can you get the money? He said, we run. Let's, let's make it happen. We made it happen in two months. Where we went, uh, myself and the coach from DC, and the camp is from uh, 16 years and under. So the idea of the camp is to go we, we had uh, about 25 basketball coaches that went to our clinic. So he would train them for about two hours. Then bring the young guys, boys and girls, where the coaches would apply what they learn to the players. So we did a whole week camp. And the idea is to do every year for five years. So we want, we want to... Sorry, is this in Burundi and Rwanda or
1: just Burundi? We
0: started with Burundi. And then we saw the interest... And my, my friend, the coach who's in the, in the U.S., he talked to Tim Durant, Kevin Durant. His dad is running a foundation. They, they became our partner. Now, when we came back, we say, hey, this is what we did in Burundi. Would you be interested to partner with us with different countries? They say, yeah, let's, let's, let's see how we can do it. So now we, we're doing a camp in Burundi. We are planning to go to do another one in Rwanda. Wow. And the idea is to bring all those countries, meet in Rwanda next year, and bring Team Duran from the US to play against those African countries.
1: Have you guys got in touch with the uh what's his name Paul Kagame? The uh...
0: not directly, no. but we've been talking to. Sorry, people.
1: Paul Kagame is the uh, the president. Yeah, he is the president. Uh, he, he
0: he has done some amazing things in terms of sports. Yeah, he is a friend of uh, Masai Ujiri, and because the NBA is putting together an African league, so apparently uh, Ujiri told. T- Kagame, that if you want to be part of it, you have to be to, to build infrastructures right. because these are big events. He said, "No problem." He built an arena, ten thousand seats in six months. <laughs> <laughs> wow, ten thousand seats in six months. When I went to Africa last, last summer, I was I saw it. It's like it's like Soska Bank Arena. It's like the exact replica of Scotia Bank Arena in six months. Now the African, the NBA African League is, ha- is happening. Some of the games will be happening in Rwanda. And they fill 10,000 seats in a, in a heartbeat.
1: Wait, this will be the uh, NBA like preseason games or?
0: No, the, the NBA is putting together uh, a, a league, um, it's similar to the Champions League, Soccer Champions League, yeah. when uh, teams from different African countries will meet um, uh, in this league. They started uh, 12 teams from nine countries. And some of the games will be happening in Rwanda because now they have the infrastructure, yes.
1: So will it be kind of like, uh, like these players play in this league. Will it be kind of like the D league or? It's
0: not really connected to the NBA. It's the NBA that this idea of creating a separate league okay, with it. the African
1: teams. So do you think like will these will these teams have any association to any NBA teams or not? No, okay. no.
0: But the tournament is put together by the NBA. They got sponsors from uh, Jordan Brand and Pepsi. Okay, I think. so
1: it's not like a it's not like a like a regular season, 82 games. It's no, not, no, no. It's oh. not.
0: It's just a few games. There'll be 12 teams from nine countries, and now they have started to play to see who's going to be part of the 12 countries they started already but this is a good platform for the NBA scouts absolutely to come and see the talent and absolutely. this is this is huge
1: and it's beautiful because um I mean I'm more I'm a fan of sports but I'm more into the arts um I mean this right here is an art for me so I always fell like you feel like your story needs to be told in one through one outlet or other or the other i mean i've always been able to tell stories through art but you know when stories are all can also be told through sport and i think that's a beautiful thing is that you know going to these countries that you know players we haven't had, seen too many NBA players come from and you know hopefully that's the goal is to develop these players to you know one day go to the league and then eventually go back give back to their communities you know, so on and so forth. So it's a very beautiful thing. And I hope that, uh you know, out of your camps, we can see some guys in the league in a couple oh, yeah. of years. yeah, I will
0: hope. But beyond that, beyond that, um, you know, the, the, the camp I did this summer was not my first one. Yep. I did my first camp back in 1999, 2000. I do two, for two years, back when I was still in Burundi. So over a thousand kids came to my camp for about two years. But at that time, The country was in a war, and there are some zones of the city that I couldn't go because I'll be killed. Right, that's how dangerous it was. But when I put together these camps, I was going from one area to another. But at that time, there were some areas of the city I couldn't even go at that time. But because I was doing basketball, doing these camps in in different cities, I would go, enter into that zone, and nobody would touch me. They say, oh, the coach. Because of basketball, I could go into those zones that if I'll go without
1: basketball, I'll be killed. And how crazy is that? That like through this thing that brings people together, there's unity. There is. Uh, there's unity like through sport. There's a sense of community. There's a sense of togetherness through, through a game. You know, you, you don't ever think that oh, just shooting a ball through a hoop can do all this and make these changes in someone's life. But it can. It can. Yes, it can. It's and that, that's phenomenal. I'm really happy that you're you're, you're doing this. You know, continuing to uh, work with the youth. But you also have you also are, the, are an author of an upcoming book. Yes. Uh, journeyman stories. Yes. So journeyman stories. What is the book about?
0: I, I never thought I'd be even releasing a book. So, you got a lot to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So this this book is a really a combination of different stories. When I start, you know, go with the projects I did in Burundi with my early days and homelessness and stuff like that. I started a blog that I called Journeyman Stories. So at first, I thought nobody would read the blog. I thought, okay, man, who will be interested in my stories? I started one and two, and before I knew it, over 35,000 people read uh, my blogs from all the continents. And some of them said, hey, man, you should make it into a book. And I said, no, 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 nobody would. I said, <laughs> One friend told me, if you don't write it, I will write it. <laughs> and that's okay, this is serious. So, so the, the book is a compilation of all the blogs that, not all the blogs, I put a survey out there to my blog readers. They say, what would you think was the best blogger, or the best right. blogs that you read? So from the feedback I got from the readers, I put together into different chapters, and the, the book came together as all the blogs, all the stories, that put into one book. So I, I released it as a, as an ebook at first, and the response was really good. Now I'm about to release it on Amazon so that people can have the paper part. People people want to read a book and they're holding their hands course, and stuff always, like that. Always, always. always. I yeah. mean, I
1: even tried like Audible and audiobooks, and it just wasn't the it's same. It's different. It wasn't the same. Yeah. So I know that the book cover also states that there's 15 life lessons that have changed your life. Yes. Can you give us three?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I can. I can give three. The first one is to have passion. Basketball, radio—that has been my childhood passion. And by me pursuing those passions, I cannot tell you how many doors it opened. I'm. I'm about to start a job at CBC because of basketball. Yeah, I have skills, of course. I have. They cannot hire you if you don't. You cannot do the job, but because I follow sports as for media, it opened. So many doors. I, I'm here in Canada because of sports and media. Passion is is everything. But with passion, the key number two is to have a vision. When you don't have a vision, it's like your life is like, a, I see vision as a GPS. A GPS is useless if there's no destination. You have to put an address, then it can lead you there. So the passion, yeah, it's good. But once you put passion and vision, then your whole life is Transform in something magical. And, and then the third one, I would say faith. Because faith is the combined with the reason why you're doing things. Because sometimes it seems like nothing is happening. Nothing is happening, really. Um, like me being homeless me, with no money. With not, if it was not faith, there was no way I would get out of those things and pursue the thing I was pursuing. And be persistent. Uh, there was a price to pay. Pay it. I paid really knowing that if you stay the course, if you don't give up, good things will happen.
1: It's crazy because, you know, you're, I feel like you're truly a guy that uh, practices what he preaches, you know, and and that's a great thing about your story. I mean, I, we, you and I, we met like earlier in the year. But like upon meeting you, I'm just like, man, I want to, like, there's something about this guy there. There's some sort of truth to him that like I want to uncover and, and know, know deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when, when we, uh, you, when you shared your story, you said something about being back home and your university professor gave you advice saying that he had hoped that you would struggle one day in, in your life. Anyone who's hearing that might be like, what? why would you want to struggle? Why would you wish someone struggles? But looking back at your struggle, what can you now make out of that advice?
0: Oh, that that was truth. But at that time, I couldn't even relate. It's like, what do you mean, man? Why struggle? But it's only true, uh, there are things that you learn through struggle that you cannot learn otherwise. Of course, Um, I agree. uh, For me, things you read in in books, they inspire you. It stays an inspiration, but until you, you do something... That when the book comes alive, really. So for me, struggling helped me first to know who's my friend, who's not. <laughs> because when I was struggling, they couldn't pick up the phone when I called them needing help. One or two people stuck with me, and I said, hmm, wow, now I know who is my true friend. But the biggest lesson for me, it was compassion. You see people in the street, they are homeless. You tend to, we judge them. Please, get up and go to work. I mean, but once you've been there, you understand that being homeless is just, it can happen to anybody. Tyler Perry, who just built a magnificent studio, he was homeless for how many years? And I'm like, wow. But once it happened to you, then there is something that happens inside of you that say, you know what, let me help. Because I've been there. I know how things can change rapidly for the good or for the worse. And compassion is something that I I won't say I didn't have before, but it's a different level now. Because when I see suffering, I can really, really relate. And then struggle build your faith. It's just an experience that it's hard when you you, you are living it, but when you look back and see where you were and where you are now, I mean, my thinking is is different. I mean, I, I cannot even go back and think, why was I thinking about those things? But now it's like, there's a, a humility and and uh, you you are down to earth. You, you you don't brag. Okay, this is what I've done. Everything's just, man, this is grace, man. I'm so thankful.
1: Is it always a constant reminder when you're walking downtown and you see someone who's homeless? Is it always like a constant reminder? Like, man, like, I you know, I've been there, but I've worked so hard to, to get to where I am. Like, I need to keep going.
0: Yes, yes. And simple things, simple things. You know, before I became homeless, I'm, I would, whenever there is a go-to-eat, I would never say grace. Was, ah, yeah, mm. food. Yeah, yeah. But until you spend one or two days without eating, right? then food is different. <laughs> you see food on the plate, I'm like, wow, there is food. Wow, this is amazing. Simple things, very simple things, and now because I, I spent days without food, now when I see food, I'm like, "Wow, thank you, thank you, I can, I can eat." I'm not talking about big things; even small things. Just be thankful that you're breathing. Yes. Yeah, it's just amazing.
1: I have two eyes. I have two ears. Yes. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I agree. It's a. Uh, it's often things we forget, but you know, it's always struggle that kind of puts us in our place and yes. you know, shakes us up. Uh, man you've had you've had quite a story you know coming from Burundi, moving to Canada, being homeless many times many times, <laughs> being homeless with with a family, keeping your passion for radio, keeping your passion for basketball, and at the end having it all work out. So you've truly had like some you know phenomenal story of that a guy who believed in himself, a guy who you know believed in his passions and a guy who stuck to it and never gave up. For anyone that's listening right now, who feels like they have their back against the wall, they're trying, things aren't working, they're trying, things aren't working, they don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. What can you tell those people? Oh man, uh, and there are
0: so many people who are in that situation. And uh, I'm gonna be like my professor and say, if you're stuck, if you are against the wall, that's the best thing that ever happened <laughs> in your life. You, you may not see it like that, uh, but know that somewhere something's happening for you. All you, you need is uh, keep believing, keep hope, knowing that things can change rapidly. And the things you learn when you are, uh, you are in that situation... Those are priceless things that you will, they will come handy in the future. But don't lose hope. Don't give up. Don't ever, ever, ever give up because something like even a conversation can change your life. And then the last thing I'll say if you are struggling, the whole situation is not for you, it's for the people that you'll be able to help. Because people don't like people who come and preach, they want to hear from somebody who's been there who understands who, what they are going through. So whatever you're going through right now, it's not for you. It's for the people you'll be able to mentor. It's for the people will be able to help once you are on the other side, because you will, if you don't give up.
1: Amazing. Well, I'm so happy that we were able to ha- make this happen, man. Thank you for sharing your wonderful stories. You know, And I'm excited for the upcoming book, Journeyman Stories. I'm excited to hear more about the camps. And uh, that's Patrick Bizandavi. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for the invite. This was fun. Thank you all for tuning in to this week's episode of the Finding Perspective podcast. If you enjoyed this week's episode and learned something new, please hit subscribe and share this podcast with your friends and family. To stay up to date with all things Finding Perspective, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Finding Perspective Podcast. You can also find me on Instagram at underscore Kapil Guy. Hope you have a great week. Until next time.